Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 274. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 274 you're listening to. My guest today is Katie McMurrin. Katie is an audio engineer with over 10 years of experience in the world of recording, editing, mixing, and mastering for public radio and the world of podcasts. She's also provided sound design and original music for theater, film, corporate conferences, and art installations. And she is my guest today. So, Katie McMurrin coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about the coronavirus. Well, my friends, first of all, let's take a sip of this coffee. Mm. All right, so we are most certainly living in some bizarre times. And this is obviously some uncharted territory. I think this is the time to arm yourself with some facts, make the best of the situation, don't panic, and by all means, please do not go down to your local grocery store and fight with people over toilet paper. Of all the things to hoard toilet paper, that just, I, I was scratching my head about that one. Couldn't figure that out. Um, well, what can I say? I don't want to repeat a bunch of the stuff that's out there already i will do this instead like i said i think the best thing to do is arm yourself with facts so i'm going to include a couple charts that uh have some factual information that i think you will find useful in the show notes that is and i'm also going to include an interview with infectious disease expert michael osterholm that joe rogan did on his podcast and i think it's uh, very informative might be a little boring it's a little over an hour to some of you might be a little boring my wife was kind of bored by it but uh i think it's got some great information and dispels conspiracy theories and uh bs like that um it's really really great so that'll be in the show notes for you to check out so in the meantime to my fellow audio professionals i don't know where you are at as you are listening to this maybe you are holed up in a hotel and the film you were working on just got postponed, but they've asked you to stay in the area. Maybe you're on uh, an airplane or in a tour bus or a van uh, trying to get home from a tour that's just been canceled. Maybe you're holed up at your studio trying to squeeze in the last couple overdubs on a record. Or, you know, maybe you're like our guest today, Katie McMurrin. Maybe you are at uh, a local radio station or television station uh, trying to help make sure that the gears keep going on the news cycle so we all get the news that we need. Uh, maybe you are at a local church trying to help your church get their, uh, their services online uh, for people to uh, be able to take part in at home. Who knows? point is, this is a great opportunity to take any extra time you have to do the things that maybe you have not had the time to do that pertains to your career. Maybe it's uh, updating your LinkedIn page, your resume, 
Maybe it's uh, experimenting with a home mix rig that you've been planning on putting together so you don't have to always mix at at a studio and you'd like to be closer to home. Maybe you're rewiring your studio. It's a great time to do that, huh? Either way, try to figure out something to do at this time other than sitting around watching the news panicking is, I guess, my point. You know, declutter, my favorite thing to do. You know, purge, take care of some of that stuff. And also uh, spend some time with your loved ones. And if you're like me, my wife and kids are going to be at home here for the next three weeks to 30 days as far as the information that we have. And as far as those of you with kids, you know, I know that if you're working at home and their school has been canceled, don't treat this like a summer vacation thing and disappear into your audio world completely and ignore them while they just go online and play video games. Uh, Try to create some structure around your kids' school schedule at home. Uh, Many schools are creating e-learning situations, Google Classroom, uh, online video learning with their school. So, you know, treat your day like any other day in terms of schedule. You know, get everybody up, get them on their tasks, get everybody working and focused so that uh, this just doesn't become wasted time. Sitting around twiddling your thumbs, If you do have the opportunity to relax and do nothing, read a book, right? Listen to an audio book, listen to a podcast, right? Uh, It's a great, great time to do that too. That's about it. Not much more to say. Don't waste your time worrying too much. Keep yourself healthy. Eat well, sleep well, get some exercise in this time period and uh, try to get some stuff done with regards to your career. Get some time spent with your family. Uh, If you have elderly parents, uh, another part of the world, another part of your country, uh, this would be a great time to obviously FaceTime or or video chat with them. You know, stay in touch with people. Let them know how you're doing. So that's it. Stay safe, my friends. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, They've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I've used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. 
And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. Katie McMurrin here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Katie, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for being here with me today. Thank you so much for having me. You are talking to us from San Francisco in the KQED building, if I'm correct. That is correct. In a control room at KQED. In a control room at KQED. So there's a bridge and a tunnel between us right now since I'm over in Lafayette, but uh, I've been to the KQED building on some tours that I've taken some Cub Scouts to, actually. And for the listener, KQED, if you live in the Bay Area, is, I don't know, there's just not very many other radio stations I depend on, but... KQED is one of those national public radio local affiliates that is just outstanding in its programming and its quality, and it's something near and dear to my heart as a Bay Area person, so love KQED. That's great to hear. We all work really, really hard, so it's nice to hear that there are listeners who appreciate it. Oh, yeah, totally appreciate it. When you worked on a session with music, the last thing you want to do is listen to music, and so KQED is the number one spot where I go to after a recording session with a band. That's how I feel about radio and podcasts. (laughs) I I turn on music immediately when I leave the station. (laughs) The exact opposite. So just really quick, just for my own kind of curiosity, you work on Forum and the California Report? I am a backup engineer for Forum. I work on the California Report okay. every day, yes. Because I was I was going to ask, I was, I was looking at your uh, LinkedIn resume here, or your LinkedIn page, and I saw Forum and I thought, wait a minute, doesn't Forum start at nine? <laughs> I'm not on Forum today. Uh, we're scheduled by shifts, and the person that does Forum ends up working a 4.15 a.m. shift. And we have someone that generally works it, but I'm his backup. So yesterday I was on forum, but today I'm not. Okay. And listeners, if you ever get the chance, doesn't matter where you are in the globe, you can listen to to forum with Michael Krasny. It's a really outstanding show. The guy is like, I don't know how he does it, but he really, he seems to get himself knowledgeable on most topics that really runs a pretty wide spectrum, I would say. So you should check it out. Well, let's get to you. Let's talk about you. Where did you grow up? I grew up in a few places. I'm from 
Arizona originally, Phoenix, and then my family moved around quite a bit. They ended up moving back to Arizona after I was in high school, but they had moved to California and I stayed in California from high school on. Mm. What got you interested in audio? At what point in your life did audio present itself as an option? (laughs) I knew you were going to ask this question because I listened to your podcast (laughs) and it's so hard for me to pinpoint, you know, I remember that I did sound for a talent show that we had in eighth grade, which is laughable to me now. It was just a cassette deck, you know, and queuing up cassettes and and playing them out through a little mixer. But I was a really passionate music fan from the time I was a teenager because of one of my older brothers who was like giving me Joan Jett records when I was eight years old. (laughs) And I know I was pretty well aware of audio by the time I was a teenager because I was reading Rolling Stone all the time. I had a subscription. I knew about Daniel Lanois and Brian Eno, that magical duo. Mm. And it was already in my mind that something really special happens when a record is made. And I think I didn't actually think about it as a career option until I was in my early 20s. -hmm. I was studying music at UC Berkeley and then One summer off, I took a community class in music recording, and that just was it for me. I was really interested, and I felt very at home in that environment. Was the instructor instrumental in getting you excited about it, or did you just naturally take to the concept? I mean, he was cool in that I was the only woman in the class, and I didn't make an issue of it, but he showed up one day and brought me this what seemed like an ancient article from Mix Magazine about women in the music industry. So I think he wanted to encourage me or be a positive force. But it was really just the space and learning about the console and learning about signal flow. Mm. And then I actually recorded a band in the class as an assignment. And it just was really interesting to me. And in school, you gone to CalArts, you've gone to UC Berkeley, University of Southern California, and you'll have to tell me about Media Bistro in a minute, but looks like you definitely brushed up on the education aspect in college. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I've always been open to exploring and trying new things, and I've always wanted to keep learning and learn more. Actually, a couple of years ago, I did one more class. I did a workshop at a university outside of London that was with Tony Visconti, and it was an audio mixing class, actually. So even though I'm of a more advanced age, I'm I'm still in school in a way. But as I mentioned, UC Berkeley didn't have a recording program. I'm not sure if they do now. So I was just getting a general music degree, studying theory and composition and ethnomusicology. So I knew that I was interested in recording and was looking for these outside options for myself. So I found that community college course in music recording. And at a certain point, after I graduated from UC Berkeley, I was working, trying to pay the bills. And I went back to San Francisco Community College Hmm. and took some classes in electronic music, analog synthesizers, that sort of thing, and also in broadcast communications. And that, I think, was the pivotal moment where I actually was on a trajectory to go into radio because the teacher of that course, he's still there, Dr. Cecil Hale, is an amazing resource. He had 
an incredible background in both radio and the music industry. He had worked with some very notable artists like Sarah Vaughn. And I thought he provided such a strong foundation in audio concepts, you know, even teaching us how electricity works, Hmm. how a condenser microphone works, you know, transduction, dynamic microphones, ribbon microphones. He just gave us such a strong background. And there were tape machines at the time, even though tape machines were falling by the wayside, at least in radio. And we had quarter-inch tape machines, and he gave us assignments, and he really encouraged me. He thought I had a gift. (laughs) You know, I don't know if those were really marketable skills at that point, using quarter-inch tape and editing little pieces on it. But he thought I had something special, and he encouraged me to go back to school and pursue audio. It's amazing how somebody like that can play such a pivotal role in one's life and really you may be going in one direction but they can just steer you just slightly to one a few degrees and really get you going forward in your career would you agree oh without a doubt i think it's so important to have a mentor i don't know how people really make strides in their career without someone who has inspired them along the way or pushed them yeah People pushing and one's own curiosity about the craft. The more people I talk to, the more I'm fascinated by the influence of others in people's careers. So I wanted to ask you, so apart from where you are now at KQED, which is public radio, long ago in the early 2000s, you were working at NPR in Los Angeles. I was working for a classical music station. That was my first job, really, after I went to CalArts which is where I went after Dr. Cecil Hale encouraged me to go back to school. He wanted me to go to Middle Tennessee University, which I think would have, my life would have taken a different path if I had done that. But I wanted to stay in California, so I went to CalArts and got a degree in music technology. And while I was at CalArts, I won an internship in the film sound industry. But when I was in it, I didn't feel like I wanted to do that as a career And so a job came up at this classical station, KUSC in Los Angeles, and I got it. There was no downtime between school and work for me. I wasn't searching for a job or struggling to find a job in audio. I basically was in an audio internship, and then I went straight into a job. What can you tell me about your experience there? It was great. I mean, it introduced me to radio and how radio works and automation systems and recording in radio studios the specific requirements needed to record voices and mix pieces where the voice is more prominent than, say, in music. Uh And to the outsider who has no experience in that environment, what can you say is the most surprising thing about that environment as compared to, say, music or film or some other audio discipline? Well, radio is very intimate. So you want that voice to be warm and present, which for me means mic placement. In public radio, there isn't a lot of processing, depending on the studio. There are some studios and there are some public radio programs that are heavily processed, that have compression, that EQ heavily. But most of the stations that I know do not. So you're thinking about trying to get the best sounding recording you can when the person, the host, the interviewer is in the studio without thinking about what you're going to do to it later. There are some challenges for me here at KQED where it's news programming and we get a lot of pieces that are mixed elsewhere and they come in 
and the actualities, which are the cuts from the interview subject, will be very poor quality. We'll have a lot of noise in the background. We'll have plosives or whatever it is, clipping. Levels are all over the place when reporters are out in the field. And that's when we have tools in post-production that will use Isotope RXs. I'm basically their number one fan. But I was even be- for I have been for many years, so even before I was at KQED. Yeah, I use Isotope RX heavily on this show. Oh, I'm sure. Just to really just... You'll need it on me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll need it on me. If I were doing this, I would be using a lot of Isotope on myself. You've also been an audiobook editor. You worked for We're Rolling Productions in Pasadena. Can you tell me about that? Yes. We're Rolling Productions, that was an independent company owned by an audiobook producer named John Runette, who lived down in Pasadena. And he produced tons of audiobooks for all the major publishers, Random House, Harper, Hachette, et cetera. And editing audiobooks is extremely laborious work, but I feel like I got so much out of it that helps me now, mm-hmm. working with voice all the time. In audiobooks, you're editing out all the breaths. We didn't have Isotope RX back then, or he didn't have Isotope RX. And you're editing out all the breaths. You're doing really, really meticulous, fine edits. You're zooming all the way into the WAV file in Pro Tools and taking the pencil tool and drawing out mouth noise. And I use that still today. And I've had people say, wow, I was working on a podcast and the producer was standing over me. And the producer said, there's some clipping a little bit right there. And it wasn't clipping, it was mouth noise. And I just, because it was one incident of it, I just zoomed all the way in and cut out that just like tiny noise. And it was a smooth edit and it was gone. And I got that from editing audiobooks. It just made me really, really sensitive to noise, basically. Noise, mouth noise, clicks, pops, all of that stuff. So it seems Isotope is great for anyway, too. (laughs) So it seems that at that point in, in your career, your trajectory was based around the voice and totally all that comes with making the voice when it needs to be in these environments of books and radio. That's kind of a unique specialty, really. It is. It is. It's it's different than music. I mix music once in a while now, and I have to be really careful not to make the voice pop too much. I'll have people listen to my music mixes because sometimes I think I don't have enough of a reference point, even though I listen to a ton of music and I have music references that I'll listen to if I mix music. I'm still just putting out so much radio, and that's a different thing. I've had this podcast now for in September of 2020, we'll hit six years, and I just now feel like I'm really getting a full grip on the voice now after doing this many episodes. It is a fascinating, narrow aspect of audio, and I see the fascination with it now. Six years ago, I didn't. <laughs> what do you mean? What In what way didn't you? Well, You weren't into podcasting, you mean? or Yeah, just because I, I wasn't paying that close attention, and my only reference point was... NPR, KQED, public radio, and in particular, Terry Gross on Fresh Air, I always just was, and even, you know, some of the the shows like Marketplace and shows like that, I listen to and I just think, wow, how do they, that sound, how does that happen with such clarity? And that's the only fascination and point of reference that I had before the podcast. Yeah. Public radio is a specific sound. It's not, it's very different from commercial radio 
which again is heavily compressed, hits you in the face, punches you in the face with a lot of sound effects and mute, loud music up underneath it. Public radio is is clean, warm, centers on the voice, is trying to make that connection with the listener over the airwaves. Yeah. And do you think that a lot of that, based on what you were telling me earlier about just kind of lack of processing, is a lot of that just because the studios are so well done in terms of acoustic treatment and mic placement and signal chain? I think ideally, I guess it it depends on the budget of the station, we use RE20s. When I was at KUSC, they had six or seven Neumann U87s, mm-hmm. which I thought was unbelievable, and I loved the sound. Yeah, I, I think it is. I think I think a lot of thought goes into the sound of the room, hopefully, if they're able to do that. When people ask me for advice on, you know, what mic should I buy, I always... In a lot of home environments, which I'm in a home environment now, I always steer people away from condenser mics and more towards ribbon mics or dynamic mics. You know, ribbon mics are dynamic mics, essentially. But I try to get them away from condenser mics. And all the podcasting ads I see for people doing podcasts or trying to sell podcast gear always seems to focus on using condenser mics. And I always think that that's weird. Really? Like which microphone have you seen advertised? Well, any any microphone, whether it's the most silly thing like a stock photo yeah. or it's an ad with a pro audio manufacturer, usually when they're putting out these ads or promoting certain products, it seems like more often than not, it's condenser mics. Although I am seeing dynamic mics more and more and more in these ads as well, in all fairness. Well, you can't trust advertising, <laughs> particularly for podcast packages when they're selling a whole package of gear for that entry-level podcaster. Yeah. It's usually not very well thought out. Yeah, definitely trying to jump on a trend there, I think. Oh, absolutely. It's funny, I saw a photo recently. I was at the gym and I was watching The Ellen Show and the actress Kate Hudson and her brother have a podcast and it showed a picture of them recording their podcast and they were sitting on a couch with handheld microphones. And I started laughing in the gym because I thought, well, that's the least optimal recording environment to record your podcast in this large living room on your couch with handheld microphones, unless they're the most still people in the universe. I can't imagine that it sounds that great, but yeah, I mean, the ha- I haven't listened. The handling noise alone in the microphone <laughs> is really a problem. Somehow I get away with it when I'm at trade shows and interviewing people on the floor of like the NAM show. It doesn't seem to be that big of a problem. And I'm not really sure why that is. Maybe it's that attention. Skill. To, yeah, skill. You should give yourself, give yourself some props there. Uh, I guess so. <laughs> hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as Check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. I want to ask you about your time at Pandora oh, sure. in Oakland as an audio producer working on that type of environment. What was it specifically that you were doing? I know what you were doing, but for the audience. Sure. So while I was at KUSC, a friend of mine had gotten a job at Pandora 
and was acting and talking like it was the best thing since sliced bread and that I must come work there. And I really had no clue. I had been in public radio at that point 10 years. I was editing audiobooks on the side. I always had a side hustle while I was at KUSC, the classical station. But I hadn't done anything remotely like what Pandora did. And I didn't even listen to Pandora. I hardly knew what Pandora was. But I was curious because she was talking it up so much. So I sent over my resume to their recruiter. And I think they hired me within seven days or something. I had to do a test. They sent me some voiceover files and I had to identify what was wrong with them. Or it was something to that degree. I remember one of the files, there was some noticeable proximity effect. So I think I was just analyzing voiceover files for quality issues. And I got the job and I was like, okay, you know, something new. I had been at KUSC quite a while and I thought I need to try something new and keep growing. So Pandora has a staff of quite a number of audio engineers from varying backgrounds. I was from public radio, but they had people from video games, people who worked in theater sound design, musicians. There was a guy who had a master's degree in forensics audio. Just an amazing hmm. assortment of individuals with audio backgrounds. It, it was really fascinating for me just for that alone. But basically what we were doing is we were producing ads. Pandora has in-house voiceover artists all over the country who are recording in their home studios. They've all been vetted so that their studios are really good quality. And there are people at Pandora who can coach these voiceover artists on how to set up a, a booth basically in their home. And we would get the ad and then we would cast it. We would choose what voice we wanted to use. We'd send them the script They'd send audio back, wave files back. They use logic there, just to give you an idea. And then we'd add music and sound effects and, and whatever design was needed for the actual ad. And then it would go out over Pandora's free stream. And then in addition to that, Pandora had a recording studio and they had a vocal booth. So they had a separate vocal booth and a recording studio. And bands would come in and perform and we were, would record those. It would be wedded to video that was being shot, and then that would go on a YouTube page. So we were multi-tracking the bands and mixing and mastering the songs later. And we were also recording artists saying, thanks for listening to my Pandora station in the vocal booth, things like that. So that was really interesting for me. What did not resonate with me was the actual advertising part, although I thought my audiobook skill came in really useful for that and helpful for that in terms of my speed of editing and, and producing the ads. But I didn't feel good about producing ads for McDonald's and Coke and, and all, all of those companies, even though I've been consumer a consumer of those products, it just didn't feel right to me. And the only thing that really was working for me was recording the bands, which wasn't my daily job. So when I was at Pandora and I was recording ads, it bothered me on a moral level. I was starting to look to see what I could do again. I didn't think I was going to get back into public radio because finding a public radio job is like finding a unicorn. So I started thinking, well, what else can I do? And I was even exploring audio archiving. And I had gone down to Stanford and done some informational interviews about becoming an audio archivist. So I really was trying to think of anything else I could do. And then you 
wound up basically back in Los Angeles. Oh, oh, this is Los Angeles and the Bay Area that where you were doing podcast work for Wondery, Radiotopia, Vox, and Gimlet. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I think just through word of mouth and knowing people, I know a lot of people in radio and podcasting. I started getting jobs mixing and mastering podcasts for different outlets. The first podcast I got was while I was at Pandora through a connection, I got asked to mix the podcast Mortified. Mortified is a live show and they have a podcast where they mix interviews and segments from the live show. So I started doing that. And then from that podcast, I started getting other podcasts. Like you read on my LinkedIn profile, I've mixed podcasts for Vox. I was a sub-engineer for Today Explained, their news podcast. And I've mixed pieces for Wondery and Gimlet and different outlets and indie outlets. Right now I'm doing one for UC Berkeley. I'd be really curious to know what are the things that that you feel are important in creating a podcast and mixing a podcast? What from technique to philosophy? What do you just bring your public radio philosophy to the table or how do you approach a podcast? I mean, it depends. There are two podcasts where I also compose the music. So that adds a different element to how I approach the mix. It depends on the actual podcast. Like, you know, different podcasts have different sounds. Some have a more in-your-face sound and some have a more public radio sound. I basically just try to aim for basic cleanliness, by which I mean I'm pretty aggressive in cleaning vocal tracks, cleaning ums and ahs, and getting out all the mouth noise and just making sure the edits are super clean. I don't leave any half breaths or anything like that. (laughs) I'll listen to the vocal tracks clean before I do anything else and make sure they're very level. Of course, there are plugins that help with that, and there's compression, and there's a, a vocal writer that waves. is a Waves plugin. Yeah. yeah, that Waves plugin. I like that plugin, actually. And I'm using RX, and I'm taking care of any sibilants and any P-pops. And then something that I got from Pandora when we were mixing ads was the vocal chain in general, and I took some of that with me. So I took away some of the ways that they used plugins on the vocal track. I'll say that. Okay. In terms of EQ and compression. Okay. And I apply that to what I do in podcasts as well. And then I'm just mixing everything really well and yeah, keeping it balanced. And again, just making sure that the story is the primary factor, that the the narrative is coming across, not the music, right. not the sound effects. You're not trying to overwhelm someone with a wall of sound. You're trying to serve the story, whatever it is. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself. 
But there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20. Get 20% off and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20 and I think you're going to be really thrilled sampley.app. Check it out. What would you recommend to others who are out there thinking podcast editing or mixing? That's that's something I'm either doing or I want to do. Could you advise on what's an appropriate rate to charge? And what what are some of the factors one should consider so we don't drive our rate to the floor? Yeah, that's a hard question. I charge by episode actually rather than hourly, but if I were charging hourly, I wouldn't go under 55 or 50 an hour. And I think that's actually fair market value at this point. Yeah. But I take the organization into consideration. I do some work for nonprofits. And if I think that I like the people and I want to be a part of their project, I might do it for a little lower depending on their budget considerations. But if I'm working for a company... I'm asking for maximum. I've done podcasts for tech companies and I'll shoot high, <laughs> basically. Right. They're, they're allowed to say no. <laughs> right. And you're doing the whole thing. I mean, you're from soup to nuts. You're doing all the editing, assembling, and handing them the final mix ready to go. Right. And that's with loudness correction and it's just ready to put online. Mm. Is it primarily word of mouth that gets you podcast gigs like that? Definitely word of mouth. But if someone were coming to me and saying, hey, how do I get into podcasting? I would say keep an eye out and network as much as possible. There are podcast meetup groups. There are podcast classes. Here in the Bay Area, there's BayVac. So I would try to be where people who are podcasting are and get my name out there and try to meet people and then get in on the entry level, find someone who's just starting a podcast, who's never done a podcast before and offer to mix their podcast and determine what the rate would be. That sounds great. I definitely think for me, it's completely been about who I've known, who I know that's gotten me where I am. And there's a lot of podcasts now, and it just seems to be on this explosive trajectory, everybody is starting podcast. There are so many podcasts, and they're of varying quality. I remember I was listening to a podcast after David Bowie passed away, and I wanted to listen to it because the interview subject was so interesting. But not only was the guest phone tape, the host was phone tape. I thought it was horrible to listen to a whole podcast. It was I think it was close to an hour long of just phone tape. And that would be a situation where I'd almost want to approach that podcast and be like, hey, would you be open to an audio engineer helping you? It's not out of the question. That's a good proactive way to do it. I like that. Early on, like I was doing my interviews where I wasn't asking people to record themselves. I was just saying, I'll get you on with Skype recorder. And that was just a crapshoot. And so if you go back to my early episodes and listen to those and compare them to now, to me, it's like night and day. Oh, it must be. Yeah, we we have to use Skype sometimes on forum or live broadcasts. And exactly, it is a crapshoot. You just never know what you're going to get on the network that day. Exactly. That's exactly the problem. Well, I'd like to dive a little bit deeper into KQED with you. First of all, what is your experience in interviewing for not only public radio, but for audio jobs? Because with the exception of, of your freelance aspects, 
You've interviewed at KQED, NPR, Pandora. That takes a certain skill to get into a gig like that, especially, as you said, public radio jobs are like unicorns. And <laughs> KQED is, is a high caliber operation, at least from my outside 30,000 foot view from what I've seen. Can you tell me about the interview process? If somebody is considering doing what you're doing, what should they be considering in regards to resume and interview? Of course, I have also interviewed for some public radio positions that I have not gotten. So I have even more experience interviewing at public radio stations. Yeah. Tell me what your thought is on doing a successful interview to get an audio gig like that. So you should have samples of work. The crazy thing is, you know, I was laughing about that San Francisco Community College course where I was editing little pieces on quarter inch tape. Well, I made a reel from that. I don't know why. And I think it was on cassette tape, which is even more ridiculous. <laughs> but when I got my first radio job, I gave them that cassette <laughs> or maybe I had digitized it by that point. But that actually got me that job, that first job. So you really do need an example of your work. You also need to have an understanding of the technology that's used in radio, all the codecs, ISDN, Comrex, Tyline, all of those. Gosh, I'm just trying to think. I've even had some interviews recently. So I'm reflecting on the questions that I asked. And there is a line of questioning that seems to happen in public radio, maybe more than other audio jobs, or maybe it's similar, actually. And one of the line of questions that comes up is, can you work with difficult people? <laughs> because... <laughs> Which is actually, I think, is funny because that really should be something that's asked in music recording, too. I, I don't know if that does come up in interviews for music recording, but I've met even more difficult people in music recording than I have in radio. But you do encounter some on-air people that might have egos or might be super demanding, and that can be challenging. So I think they're judging on not only your skill your knowledge of the technology, your work samples, but also your personality. And if you seem even keeled, I don't think anyone who has a temper or looks like they have a short fuse is going to get very far in, in public radio. It, you have to be someone who's easy to work with, calm, and can work under pressure. Because particularly in live broadcast, just like in any live audio environment. So many things go wrong. The technology is one thing and, this, you know, and the skill set, but the interpersonal is also, I think, fascinating and very important. I actually think it might even be more important in a way because I remember I had an interview where the guy said, look, I can teach anyone to do what we do. It's not brain surgery, but you can't give someone the type of personality and the type of temperament that can work with people, that isn't inherent in all audio engineers. So it can't just be a technical skill. It really has to be a personality type that can work with difficult personalities, that can juggle things, that can problem solve when everything goes wrong and you're, you're on the radio. You have to do something about it. Yeah, and you know that there's that panic that sets in. I mean, I've, I've encountered it early on in, in studios that I worked on when I was first starting where the owner just said, here's the keys, good luck. And then something on the patch bay is not working and the band's in there ready to go. And you're on the phone going, hey, 
patch point such and such isn't working. Oh yeah, that's a little problematic. Just jiggle the 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 cable just a little bit, and it should come into play. <laughs> and you're like, oh my god, and your heart is pounding. In well, that says so much about you that you called and asked, though. I mean, I, I know so many people who will just be like, I got this. You know, I'm not going to ask. Screw that. <laughs> I'm an audio engineer. I know what to do. And that doesn't serve you in the end. I'm notorious for asking questions, probably to a detriment. But I just want to make sure I know. I'm not going to know what I don't know. I think the thing that intimidates me a little bit about public radio is when you talked about Codex, I talked to... Mary Masaryk in Chicago about this. And she talked about Codex and I got to thinking about it and I thought, wow, I think that if I were to go into that world, that would kind of freak me out a little bit and I need to really kind of study up on that before I got in there. What can one do, and I'm not seriously thinking about going into public radio, but what could one do if they want to brush up on those technologies? Because those technologies kind of come and go. Right, they they develop. That's over very time. true. And actually, ISDN may eventually go. There are certain stations that are getting rid of ISDN. The telephone companies aren't supporting ISDN technology anymore. Mm-hmm. So things really are going more and more to IP audio over IP. We use Comrex as our main IP way of connecting with others over IP. And they actually have a manual on their website that I find really informational and pretty easy to understand. So it, it would just be reading manuals. I don't, I don't know any other way to understand it beyond that. Once it's up and running, you know, like once the box is installed, they're also like our reporters have little boxes that mm-hmm. they take out and connect back to the studio with. And that I had to just take one of them out of the case and play with it and figure out how it worked and figure out how to set it up so that I could later explain it to the reporters who maybe don't have the facility technically to figure it out on their own and encounter problems. And those can be a little bit tricky to get going when you're out in the field. There are a lot of things that can go wrong. But once the box is installed, it's not that difficult to make the connections and get the audio through the board. I'll include a link to Comrex in the show notes audience, and you can check that out on your own. <laughs> oh, wow. Comrex should give me a payback or something. That's right. They should give you a, give you a, a some kind of, they a, should <laughs> write you a check. Yeah, some sort of swag. On the personal side, do you have any daily routines that are important to you that help kind of keep your mind in focus? Yeah, I meditate every day and I go to the gym almost every day. So those things are incredibly helpful. It's funny because like yesterday I was doing forum and it was super stressful. We had a press conference that we had to take and we were taking the press conference from a Twitter feed. And I hate having to get live audio from Twitter. I'm not even on Twitter. Was that Governor Gavin Newsom's press conference on uh, coronavirus? Yeah, I was. was listening. Yeah. And I was just like, I really was stressed on the inside. I was really, really stressed out. And after it was over, one of the producers said, calm under pressure. She always says, I'm so calm. I'm calm as a cucumber. So maybe externally, I seem really focused and calm. But internally, I was just like screaming in my head. Wow. But I would say meditation has been life-changing. It's it's really helpful with stress. And it's also really helpful with focus and attention. Meditation has been coming up so much on the show lately. It's pretty surprising. 
Do you have any productivity apps or systems that you use to kind of keep your schedule straight, money straight, life straight? I don't. I don't. I'm hyper-organized, but I just have my own weird systems. I don't have any tools that are apps or programs that I could recommend. And kind of an overarching philosophy, what's your financial advice for other audio professionals? Because audio can be, if you're a freelancer especially, it can ebb and flow. And one can lose a job, of course. So what's your financial advice for other audio pros? Oh, that's hard. I know from being a freelancer, when I first started at KQED, I was part-time. And so the rest of my income was coming from freelance. And I, I really sympathize with that ebb and flow with how you can't always depend on it. And that can be a scary thing. I think, of course, it's important to be judicious with your money and your spending and your saving. I I live in an apartment. Obviously, we're in the Bay Area, so I don't own a house. But I was mindful about what rent I was going to pay and what my max rent was going to be because I wanted to make sure that I always could pay rent and I wouldn't be in a situation, even if the freelance gigs weren't coming in, where I I wouldn't be able to pay for basic needs, Mm. food and housing. So making sure that your basic needs are being met is really important. And I've also had times where I've had non-audio jobs. I worked in the box office of a theater for a long time when I was at that classical radio station. Like I said, I had a lot of side hustles and I didn't quit it until I got that audiobook job. So I would say be conservative in your spending. I I think it's easy to want to spend a lot of money when you're in audio because there are so many toys. There's so much gear. I was just looking at a Sound Devices Mix Pre-10 a couple of days ago and thinking, wow, I really want that. That could be so useful to me, but it's $1,300. And (laughs) I don't know if I'm going to get that right now, but maybe one day. It's easy to get sucked into wanting to spend more and more and more, and everything is very expensive. So whenever I buy gear... I buy the best quality gear I can within my budget. I don't go outside of my budget for things. Mm. So I'm pretty, probably more on the conservative side in terms of spending. And then, like I said, just keeping your eye open for side jobs, checking Craigslist, checking every job outlet, networking and hustling, you know? Yeah. Do you diversify in, in doing other audio gigs outside of KQED? Well, I still have freelance podcast gigs. I have a volunteer audio gig that I do where I record bands for a nonprofit, and I sometimes do live sound. So there was a short period of time where I was doing live sound for house concerts, and right now I do live podcast gigs. And do you have a set of equipment or a home studio that you rely on to mix podcasts? Yeah, I have a home studio for mixing. For the live stuff, I'm just about to buy a mixer. I've been... (laughs) going back and forth and back and forth about what sort of mixer I want and how many tracks I need. And I've so I, all the gigs that I've had so far, I've actually borrowed gear from friends of mine, but I'm just in the process of buying stuff that I can use for my live sound gigs. Well, we are out of time. It's been great to talk to you and, and super useful. I know that at first you were like, I don't know if I have anything to offer, but you truly <laughs> have a hoard of information here. And I really appreciate you coming on the show. Yeah, I was thinking about it. I mean, I've never been on this side of the podcast, obviously, so it's really unusual for me. I've never been on the microphone. But when I was thinking about it later, I thought, well, maybe if if there's anything to be gotten out of this, it's just be open and curious and 
know that you can try all these different things, that there's so many ways to get into audio. There are so many options in audio. And I think more and more now, not just podcasting, but with all the tech companies, I just think there are a lot more options now than when I was starting out. And I would encourage people who want to get into audio to explore everything and don't feel afraid, like email someone, LinkedIn connect with someone, call someone and and ask if you can meet up with them and see what they do. Yeah, because there's more to audio than just music and film and games. There is. I mean, those are the big ones, of course, but there's a lot. Yeah, a lot of job possibilities, a lot of income possibilities in all these things. Katie, thank you so much. Great information. And we'll include a link to your LinkedIn page for those that might have follow-up questions for you, if that's okay with you. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. All right. Well, you take care and enjoy your day there at KQED, and uh, we'll talk later. Thank you. Sounds good. Thanks for having me again. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LPUNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LPUNF. Katie McMurrin. Here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Want to thank everybody that helped out with the show. That includes Anne-Marie Plo on the editing, Cliff Truesdell on the Working Class Audio theme music, and Chuck Smith there, the voice. Connect with me on LinkedIn, spread the word, tell all your friends, and thanks for coming back week after week. Until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.